At 10 a.m. Central Standard Time on November 24, 1963, most of the world was waiting to see the accused President Kennedy assassin Lee Harvey Oswald being transferred from the Dallas police station to the county jail. Jack Ruby was barely out of bed. Millions of people were tuned in to ABC, CBS, or NBC at 10 a.m. for live television coverage of Oswald's transfer. Everyone wanted a glimpse of the most hated man in America. Jack Rubenstein, a.k.a. Jack Ruby, a Dallas nightclub operator with known ties to local mobsters, had stalked Oswald at the police station on two separate occasions in the preceding 48 hours. As a nightcrawler due to his livelihood, Ruby was not a particularly early riser. This day would start out as any other, but it would hardly stay that way. As a defiant Lee Harvey Oswald was being questioned one last time before his transfer, Ruby seemed in no hurry to take his place in the history books. One of the many mysteries surrounding the JFK assassination pertains to the odd actions of the assassin's assassin. If the world media had assembled in the Dallas police station basement at 10 a.m. to report on Oswald's transfer, and if the cameras of the Big Three networks were ready to bring live coverage of the 10 a.m. scheduled transfer of the infamous prisoner, why wasn't the emotionally distraught Jack Ruby also at the police station at 10 a.m. for possibly the last opportunity to carry out his vengeful act? Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Welcome to the end of innocence. I'm your host, John Young. Lee Oswald will be brought shortly for the 1.3 mile journey to the Dallas County Jail, which ironically is just across from the scene where President Kennedy was assassinated on Friday. Oswald has been held here under maximum security. There apparently have been some indications that uh, his life might be endangered during this trip to the Dallas County Jail. Utmost security precautions have been taken. Here in the basement, there are a number of vehicles, and all of those vehicles have been thoroughly searched. Dallas police officers with riot guns are at strategically placed locations. And uh, Oswald will have to come down here from the fourth floor, which is where his jail cell has been located. 
and where he has been held since Friday, except for periods of interrogation. He's expected down any moment. We don't know exactly what the timetable is now. He will be put in an automobile here in the basement of the Dallas Police Building. They will go up a ramp to Commerce Street, and the route to the Dallas County Jail is being kept secret. There are three normal routes. We are told that they will not take any of those. That, then, is the situation at this hour at Dallas Police Headquarters. 24-year-old Lee Oswald. Oswald will be transported soon to the Dallas County Jail. This is Tom Pettit, NBC News, at Dallas Police Headquarters. Had the transfer taken place at 10 a.m. as publicized, Jack Ruby would have missed his rendezvous with history. But Jack Ruby was not there, and the transfer did not happen in his absence. So what are we to make of that? There are two ways to look at it. The Warren Report says, Ruby's absence at 10 a.m. suggests that there was no premeditation on his part. The Warren Commission, which was formed because of Jack Ruby's murder of the charged suspect, concluded that Ruby acted impulsively out of emotion and his love for the fallen president. The report claims that Ruby thought of himself as a patriot who wanted to spare Mrs. Kennedy the ordeal of having to return to Dallas to testify at Oswald's trial. Researchers and conspiracy theorists say, if Ruby's motive was to spare Jackie the anguish of reliving her husband's violent death at Oswald's trial, he would have had premeditated thoughts and actions. Jack Ruby would have gotten up early to ensure he would not miss the 10 a.m. transfer as reported in the newspapers that were strewn on his bed. He would have made sure that his revolver was loaded and ready, and he would have had plotted his time to make certain to be at the Dallas police station before 10 a.m. After all, how was he to know what security obstacles awaited him at the police station? What elusive measures might he have to take to get into the basement in time? Further, if Ruby acted out of heartbreak and his love for President Kennedy, why didn't he, one, attend the motorcade as a fan two days earlier to see his beloved president, and two, purchase tickets to attend the president's luncheon speech at the Dallas Trademark, which was to occur there minutes after the limousine had passed through Deagle Plaza? Jack Ruby did neither. So an even more haunting question arises. How did Jack Ruby know the precise revised time that Lee Oswald would be brought out to the awaiting press amongst whom Ruby was able to position himself within a few feet of his target? The first oddity we must ponder is the time delay of Oswald's transfer. This is an important issue because of the advertised time of 10 a.m. Advance notice was given as a courtesy to the press, especially the three major networks who were making history by telecasting all JFK assassination-related events live on television. With millions of Americans sitting in front of their TVs on a Sunday morning and all three networks set for a live broadcast, you would think that every effort would have been made to be punctual. A 10 or 15 minute delay would be understandable. Although the Dallas police had gone out of its way to accommodate the press all weekend under incredibly difficult circumstances, it suddenly shows no consideration for the media or a massive live TV audience. Basement of the Dallas police headquarters. And it is through this corridor of newsmen, photographers, and policemen that Lee Oswald will be brought to a vehicle for transfer to the Dallas County Jail, a distance of about 15 blocks or 1.3 miles. We're told there's a crowd of about 2,500 people around the county jail area and a crowd of more than 100 waiting on the sidewalk across Commerce Street from Dallas Police Headquarters. There has been extraordinary security for transfer of this prisoner. Policemen have been armed with riot guns and are placed at strategically located positions. All of the vehicles in this garage area of the Dallas Police Department have been searched and searched again. 
police officers uh, have been marching up and down this entryway here with rifles in hand. These precautions have been taken because there has been some indication to Dallas police that there might be some effort to do something during the transfer of Lee Oswald to the Dallas County Jail. That then, in brief, is the situation. We're waiting here in the basement with uh, other reporters, cameramen, photographers, police, FBI agents, for Lee Oswald, accused killer of President Kennedy, of a Dallas police officer, charged with the attempted murder of Texas Governor John Connolly. He will be transferred very shortly from here to the Dallas County Jail. Now to Charles Murphy at the Dallas County Jail. This is Charles Murphy in the Dallas County Jail in Dallas, Texas, where we, along with about 40 reporters and photographers, are awaiting the arrival, the transfer of Lee Oswald, expected within the next few minutes. Across the street from the jail, a large crowd has gathered on Dealey Plaza. Dealey Plaza is at the top of the crest of the hill near where the president was shot. The crowd has its back to the scene of the assassination. The crowd is facing the entrance to the Dallas County Jail. We expect word momentarily on the transfer of Oswald to Dallas County. Charles Murphy reporting from inside the Dallas County Jail. Incredibly, the press and national TV audience would be kept waiting for 81 minutes until 11.21 a.m. when Oswald made his appearance. This delay might not be an enduring controversy if an even more bizarre thing hadn't occurred. Exactly 80 minutes after the scheduled transfer time at 11.20 a.m., Jack Ruby somehow casually walked past police security, dozens of reporters and newsmen, to take his place in history. As if on cue, just one minute after Ruby's arrival, prisoner Lee Oswald is paraded out before clicking cameras and the glaring lights of a live TV coverage audience. Among the media horde is a man in a dark suit and a black fedora hat. Just seconds after arriving, Jack Ruby lunges forward only a few feet and fires a single shot into his target's abdomen. Before a shocked nationwide audience, a shackled Oswald cries out in pain and never says another word. The shooting becomes the only time a murder is captured live on television, making millions of people witnesses to history. He's been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. There's a man with a gun. It's absolute panic. Absolute panic here in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters. Detectives have their guns drawn. Oswald has been shot. There's no question about it, Oswald has been shot. Pandemonium has broken loose here in the basement of Dallas Police Headquarters. Now whether the bullet literally hit Oswald or not, we are not absolutely positive. But there has been a gunshot. Oswald reached for his stomach doubled up. It'll be impossible to determine whether he was hit or not. Did you see whether or not he was hit? He was hit, wasn't he? He grabbed himself on the side and uh, fell to the ground. That was my understanding. We were, what, four feet away from him? I was five feet in front of him when he shot. 
What is your name? Frank Johnson. And you're with <laughs> UPI. He did grab his stomach. I saw him yes, grab he did. his stomach. Right from the one of us or what? Uh, I thought he was one of the detectives. You know, he had a hat right. uh, and uh, struck. He was well dressed. That's what I remember. Have you seen him before? I think he had his hat. There were, there were none of us in this oh, area. Maybe he flew off. I don't know because I look at the flash. There were no so. reporters in this area. What? No. The trouble is I got his tie. I can shoot. All right. Now that's the situation here at Dallas Police Headquarters in the basement. We're in this story which has been so unreal from the very beginning. As Lee Oswald, 24 years old, was attempting to move through a crowd to the armored car where he was to be transferred to the Dallas County Jail. As Oswald came out, he was asked, did you uh, shoot the president or something along those lines? And at that hour, at that moment, at that instant, sometime about 11.15 in Dallas, someone walked up to Oswald at point-blank range, fired into his stomach. An ambulance now is coming here. This will be the ambulance to take Lee Oswald. It's almost unbelievable. This is the uh, back end of the ambulance. The back of the ambulance has been opened. Police and detectives are now standing cordoned off. Here comes a squad car. Here he comes. Here's Oswald again. He is now lying very pale on the stretcher. He's being put into the ambulance head first. Dr. Malcolm Perry said that accused presidential assassin Lee Harvey Oswald was lethally injured by the time he arrived at Parkland Hospital's emergency room. Dr. Tom Shires, chief of surgery at Parkland, said, however, that Oswald had an outside chance. He states, quote, We first saw Mr. Oswald in the Parkland emergency room number two around 11.30 a.m. Sunday, November 24th. At that time, he was unconscious, had no blood pressure, but made agonal respiratory efforts or dying gasp, end quote. Charles Crenshaw was one of the first doctors to see Lee Oswald when he arrived at Parkland Hospital. A gifted surgeon and one of the men who had treated President Kennedy, he fought to save the life of his patient. Here is Dr. Crenshaw's recollections of the last moments of Lee Oswald's life. He states, quote, I suggested that we not treat Oswald in Trauma Room 1 in honor of the memory of President Kennedy. So we were waiting for Oswald to arrive in Trauma Room 2, where Governor Conley had been. Oswald arrived on a cart. He was ashen. He had no blood pressure, no pulse, but he still had a heartbeat. He was breathing, and he was maintained on the cart nearly seven and a half minutes. The chief of anesthesia, Dr. Jenkins, put a tracheal tube in place. Oswald was placed on 100% oxygen. Dr. Ron Jones, a senior resident, had come down and he had put a chest tube on the left because the bullet, even though it looks as though it went straight into the abdomen, went through part of his left lung. Oswald was catheterized by the urology resident, Dr. Bill Risk. After all this was done, we got Oswald to the elevator and up to their operating room. We used the first operating room available. Dr. Malcolm Perry started the operation 12 minutes after Oswald arrived at Parkland. There was no delay in taking care of Oswald. We put betadine on his abdomen and he was operated on. The incision was made midline from chest bone down. We found that almost his whole blood volume was in his abdomen. Dr. Duke had run and gotten all of the old negative blood. 
so Oswald was receiving blood immediately. It was later found that he had A negative, so it worked out very well. He didn't have type Pacific blood. We were pumping the blood in and we started wiping all of the blood out of his abdomen. There were all these areas of the wound. The bullet went in on the left side through the left lung. It hit the spleen, then hit the major artery in the abdomen, the aorta, and part of the main artery of his intestines. Then the bullet went through the major vein called the vena cava, through the loops of the intestines, the upper part of the right kidney, and then completely through the liver, and the bullet was on the right side underneath the skin. In that one shot, as we sometimes say, Ruby hit it all. He hit all of the real estate in the abdomen from left to right. It was the most woeful injury you could see. We took the spleen out, clamped that off, stopped the bleeding from the aorta, sewed the artery back on the aorta, and were taking care of the different injuries. The injuries were amenable to surgery. I stood there at the end of the table watching, and I noticed a rather large fellow to my left, weighing at least 200 pounds. He was in a small scrub suit with a badge on his left upper pocket and a gun in a back small pocket of his scrub suit. He had no hat and no mask. I was then tapped on the shoulder and a nurse who I did not know asked me if I would take a call. I thought to myself, well, everything's happening at Parkland. So I went to the nursing supervisor, Mrs. Audrey Bell. I picked up the phone and immediately I heard this loud voice. It said, this is President Lyndon Baines Johnson. How is the accused assassin doing? I told them that he had lost a lot of blood, but he was holding his own, and he said, would you take a message to the chief operating surgeon? It was more of an order than a request, and he said, there's a man in the room. I would like for him to be able to take a deathbed confession from Oswald. So I thought, yes sir, but all of a sudden the phone stopped. So I went back to the room and I tapped Dr. Tom Shires, the chief of surgery, on the shoulder and said, guess who I've been talking to? And he looked at me and said, what's going to happen now? And I said, that was the President Lyndon Bain Johnson on the phone, and he wants a deathbed confession from Oswald. Crenshaw goes on to say, Oswald was on oxygen and anesthesia. He wouldn't have been able to talk for two or three days, even if he had survived. There would have been no way. The amount of time from when Oswald had been shot until the time he got to Parkland had been too long. Dr. Crenshaw goes on to say that Oswald's heart started fibrillating, and they tried all the medications and procedures to restart his heart. We started a manual squeezing or pumping of the heart, direct injection of adrenaline into his heart. We tried to use electrotherapy and shock. Dr. McClellan took out the paddle and through a series of amps went up until it was as high as it could go. And each time Oswald was shocked, there was no activity on the EKG. Dr. Gene Atkin told Dr. Shires that Oswald's eyes were clouding over. It was obvious that Lee Harvey Oswald was dead. Lee Harvey Oswald died at 1.07 p.m. Central Standard Time on November 24, 1963. And what secrets died with him, we may never know. Dr. Tom Shires, the Chief of Surgery at Parkland Memorial Hospital and Southwestern Medical School, is coming into the room now to make a statement on Mr. Oswald. Dr. Shires has left the operating room, the operating table where Oswald is lying, to make this statement. Somebody want to ask a question? Talk a little louder, doctor. Is he alive, doctor? No. Let Dr. Shires make his statement, please. When did he die, doctor? He died at 107, our time, 1307, of his gunshot wound. Would you like to ask questions or what? Yeah, he, Mr. Oswald died at 1.07 our time in the operating room of the gunshot wound, which he had 
receive. Would you describe his last moments on the operating table, please? The last moments were rather hectic. He had a cardiac arrest from all the massive blood loss and massive injury. The last few minutes were spent in cardiac resuscitation, open heart massage, uh, electrical defibrillation, internal defibrillation, and finally there were absolutely no signs of life at all, fixed dilated pupils and all the signs of death. How many surgeons were working on him at the time? There were four actually operating uh, scrubbed at the same time, did besides you, the others. How long was he ever cardiac arrest? Did, uh, he died? I don't really know. Did, I imagine 20 or 30 minutes. Did he ever talk to you or say anything? No, he never regained consciousness at all. In fact, before surgery, we had no blood pressure, uh, a few agonal respiratory efforts, and that was all. During the operation, once... During the operation, once we got control of the major vessels, the aorta, the vena cava, the kidney injury, we had a blood pressure for a time, but then we had the cardiac arrest, which was obviously incident to massive blood loss, uh, the anoxia that had occurred. This was, a, an, again, a fatal wound that he received. Was there ever any chance for him to recover? Well, there's always a chance, uh, as long as you have uh, signs of life, and we had at least... Uh, uh, a heartbeat preoperatively, so uh, there was a slight chance. So we. Tried. What was your impression when you first saw him, though? Did you have any hope uh, on your first impression for recovery? Not much, although, again, there's always a chance. The course of the bullet wound through the upper abdomen was such one could feel a bullet under the skin on the right side, the entrance wound in the upper abdomen on the left side. Uh, we've guessed that he had injured all the major vessels in the between space and sure enough we had what organs from left to right this went through the spleen then into the pancreas uh, then the aorta the vena cava the right kidney right lobe of the liver out into the subcutaneous area just transecting skin was the bullet under the skin in? just under the skin under the skin on the right side on the right side uh, spleen aorta vena cava pancreas kidney liver Dr. Dr. Shires, do you know what caliber bullet it would have been? Yeah, it looked like a 38 caliber bullet. We removed the uh, bullet at the end. After death, you removed the bullet? Well, yes. Mm -hmm. It looked like what, sir? 38 caliber. Just guessing. Did you have blood pressure before surgery? No, no blood pressure at all. Did you say that he did have damage uh, on investigating? He did find damage in all those organs? Every one of them. What was the immediate cause of death? The gunshot wound, uh, the final cause of death was massive injury with massive blood loss uh, and then cardiac arrest. Doctor, would you say that Oswald might have had a weak heart to begin with? No way of telling. It uh, actually did not appear to be damaged previously. Uh, when we did the cardiac massage, uh, the problem was a flabby heart, which was indicative of massive blood loss and anoxia, which he sustained from the time of the injury. From your observation, what would you say was his general condition besides the gunshot wound? In other words, was he physically a well man? On brief inspection in the emergency room, apparently so. Who, who did the massage? All of the operating surgeons I did, Dr. Perry, Dr. McClellan. Who Dr. are the Jones. operating surgeons? Uh, Dr. Perry, Dr. McClellan, Dr. Jones, there were three others besides me. They just happened to be in the building at the time? We were all in the building. Did you first inform his relatives of the death before you came here? No, I came right here from the operating room, escorted from the operating room. 
Doctor, those in the operating room, were any of those the same people present at the time of the president's death? Yes, as you know, Dr. Perry did the tracheotomy on the President oh, that's Kennedy. Perry. That's right. Dr. Charles, uh, did you have a pacemaker on him at yes. the time he died? Yes. How long did you keep it going after, after he died? Until there were absolutely no signs of life. Uh, how long that was, I don't know. Several minutes. Is the defibrillator still on him? The defibrillator was used several times, yes. He did determine death was at about 107 feet. That's right, 107. I would like to ask Dr. Shires to dictate uh, a short statement to our secretaries, which we will reproduce and get into your hands so that everybody can have these details, if that's agreeable with you, Dr. Shire. Would you like to find well, that's the story from Parkland Hospital. Press room set up 75 to 85 feet and one flight down from the surgical section where Lee Oswald has just died. He died 48 hours, almost to the minute, after the death of President Kennedy, the man he is accused of assassinating. And one of them. This final development, Lee Oswald has died a fantastic new development in one of the most fantastic stories in American history. Here's the resume of what happened during this last hectic hour. Oswald was brought down the elevator of the city jail in downtown Dallas to be transferred to the county jail. This was just before noon. Ahead of him were two homicide detectives. Beside him was Captain Will Fritz. The elevator stopped at the garage level. Backed up to the entrance of the garage was a Brinks armored truck, which was to take the prisoner one and a half miles to the county jail. Oswald made only a few steps in the direction of the truck when a man, a stocky man, lunged at him. A muffled sound like an explosion was heard. Next, we learned that Oswald had been rushed by ambulance to Parkland Hospital. He arrived here at approximately 11.30. He was moved immediately into emergency room number two, where he was given intravenous injections, including blood. He was there only momentarily, though. His condition was so bad, in fact, it was described as extremely critical. He was moved upstairs at once to surgery. Dr. Tom Shires and a team of about five or six surgeons worked unsuccessfully for over an hour to try and save his life. In the midst of the operation, Shire sent in this statement to newsmen. He said there had been a cardiac arrest, which means no rupture or occlusion of the heart, that the heart had stopped beating because of the massive hemorrhaging of the stomach. The, the, the bullet caliber unknown yet, had entered his left side and had not exited. A chest surgeon, we don't know his name yet, opened the chest and began massaging the heart. The attempt at restoring heartbeat was temporarily successful. We received a poor, another report within about five minutes from the surgery section that an electronic pacemaker was being used to try to restore 
a, a rhythmic heart for Oswald. Then, about ten minutes after that, just minutes ago, as you witnessed it yourself, Dr. Shires came in this press room and announced that Lee Oswald was dead. This is Charles Murphy reporting from the Parkland Hospital press room in Dallas. <laughs>